Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 54, Justinian II. Justinian II was born in 669 in Constantinople. He was the eldest son of Constantine IV and his wife, Anastasia. When he was five, his father successfully overcame Muawiyah's most threatening assault on Byzantium, and so spent the rest of his childhood in relative security and comfort. The noises from those around him would have indicated that the immense pressure the empire had been under for the past 50 years was finally easing. As you know, Justinian was crowned co-emperor with his father in 681, and would have been well aware that his two uncles had had their noses slit by his father's orders to ensure that he would rule alone. When Constantine IV died four years later, the throne of Byzantium was once again filled by a man aged under 21. At 16, Justinian II became Emperor of the Romans. Both Constance II and Constantine IV had shown admirable maturity in taking on such a pressurised role at such a young age. Clearly their education, or their advisers, had prepared them well for the task of becoming emperor. Justinian II is not an exception to that rule. He too would take to imperial office, like the proverbial duck, to water. However, he lacked the caution, or the modesty, that came with the empire's reduced circumstances. That's why I began his introduction by noting that between his 5th and 15th birthdays, the Byzantines were not faced with serious Arab invasions. His formative years perhaps lulled him into a false sense of security about the true state of the Roman world. We should all be grateful, really, that Constantine IV decided to break with family tradition by naming his son Justinian, rather than Constantine or Heraclius. However, this too may have had an unfortunate impact on the young emperor's mind. Whether he was reading Procopius's histories or touring the Hagia Sophia, the young Vasilevs seems to have taken on board the achievements of his namesake 
and decided that no better model existed for his own time on the throne than that of Justinian I. So, just like that emperor, Justinian II began his imperial reign with a flurry of activity. With his father dead, the Augustus concluded that the peace treaty with the caliphate was no longer valid, and he ordered an army to go on a deep raid into the Caucasus. The Muslim civil war was still raging, so it was perfectly possible for some gains to be made, and in 686 the army crossed the border under the command of the Stratigos of the Anatolikon, Leontius. The general's mission was a complete success. He installed pro-Roman princes in Armenia and Iberia. He levied taxes in the area to help pay for the campaign. He defeated some isolated Arab garrisons and, best of all, actually raided into northwest Iran, just as Heraclius had done, safe in the knowledge that the main Muslim armies were off fighting elsewhere. The damage done was worrying enough to the embattled Caliph Abd al-Malik that he offered yet another peace treaty with even better terms. Not only would he pay the same tribute as before, but he would throw in a shared revenue deal over Cyprus, Armenia and Iberia. However, one condition of the new terms was that the Romans should take back the Mathraites, those Christian rebels who were loose in Syria. Justinian had big plans for his armies, and feeling the need for fresh recruits, he agreed to resettle the deserters. Apparently, as many as 12,000 Mathraites, although this, this number includes women and children too, took the deal and safely made their way back to the empire where they were to be enrolled in the Caravisiani, or Carabisian theme, as you may read it in the history books, i.e. the navy. This was not considered glamorous work, uh, but was clearly a fate befitting former rebels. Uh, that was not everyone, though. Many of the discontents remained in the Syrian mountain hideouts. I should probably add at this point that one of the sources for Theophanes' history is an outspoken critic of Justinian II. We'll get into that later on in his life, but for now it's worth saying that this source felt that the Mathraites were a valuable thorn in the caliphate's side, and that they would be less valuable as servants on the Roman side of the border. But the emperor disagreed. Justinian had plans to build up the strength of his army. The Mathraites were tough and would make excellent marines. Together with reinforcing the Carabisian theme, the emperor created a new theme of Hellas, again, as you would read it in English, as in a naval squadron based at Corinth in Greece to defend the Aegean Sea and most likely designed to help protect the approaches to Constantinople. With the peace secure, the emperor ordered the themes to gather in Thrace for a campaign beginning the next spring. And in 688, the emperor himself led a large army toward Thessalonica. As usual, the imperial army quickly overwhelmed any resistance from the Slav tribes living along the route. The emperor went on to visit the city. Meanwhile, his troops began to lead the Slavs down to the shore, load them and their families onto boats, and began deporting them to Anatolia. As you can imagine, after a century of raiding, Anatolia was depopulated. If Justinian was going to create large, healthy armies again, then he needed new settlers. 
You may remember that Constance II had done the same thing, only to see a Slav battalion defect to the Arab side. His grandson was planning on repeating this policy, but on a much larger scale. It's hard to know whether 100,000 people were really shipped across the Sea of Marmara that summer, but it clearly was a large number, many of whom were settled just on the other side in and around Kizikus, which had understandably suffered from the Arab fleet's depredations. Within a few years, it's said, again probably exaggeratedly, that 30,000 Slav men were enrolled in the Roman army. But even if it were only half that number, it would still have been an impressive achievement, though obviously it was not a popular one amongst those being forcibly relocated. Justinian had also cut off the tribute that his father paid to the Bulgars in reaction to the Khanate's men spreading their influence into Thrace. However, the emperor soon suffered for this decision. On his way home from Thessalonica, his guard were ambushed by some Bulgars and suffered sharp losses as they fled from a mountain pass. Demonstrating energy to match that of his namesake, Justinian was back on campaign the following year as well, though not personally. He ordered the eastern armies to attack the caliphate when the agreed tribute did not arrive. Abd al-Malik was quick to send word that his objection was based on the continued presence of the Matraites, who, according to the treaty, should all have been removed. Happy to collect more recruits, Justinian ordered his men to escort the remaining rebels out of northern Syria. The emperor also asked for a tweak of the peace agreement. He offered to lower the amount he would take each year in exchange for complete control of the revenues of Cyprus, Armenia, and Iberia. The caliph agreed. The latter move was presumably a wise accounting strategy, as it would allow the emperor's tax collectors greater freedom in those territories. And Justinian's tax collectors were very busy. A bigger army means more men to pay, more horses, more food, more fodder, more weapons, more equipment, and so on. Just like our first Justinian, the emperor needed plenty of cash to fund his ambitions. And, just like his namesake, his tax collectors soon gained a reputation for illegal and sometimes violent extortion to screw every last penny out of the population, especially the capital's senatorial class, whose exemptions from tax were an easy target. And some who resisted the exemptions were indeed thrown in prison, the two men who were gaining such a poor reputation were the Sakelarios Stephen the Persian and the General Logothete, another new finance minister, Theodotus. They were soon as hated as John the Cappadocian and Tribonian had ever been. Of course, we have to offer the usual caveats. The histories love extreme stories, and we have only the one report on how bad these men were. Also, we should beware the symmetry between the reigns of the two Justinians, because it feels a little like a convenient literary device. However, the emperor's need for taxes uh, was real enough, and he was definitely trying to raise them any way he could, as we'll see in a moment. While I'm here, though, I should point out that Stephen the Persian was not an isolated case of a Sasanid descendant now working for the Byzantines. Some of Shavaraz's men had entered imperial service when the Persian civil wars turned against them, and others followed once the Arab attacks began. 
administrative reform and army recruitment cost money. And you know what else costs money? Building. And you know what Justinian I was famous for? Building. So what did Justinian II decide to do? Yes. No emperor since the first Justinian had commissioned much in the way of new building projects because money and manpower had been so tight and the empire's borders not very secure. Despite all of those conditions remaining precarious, Justinian II ordered building work to begin. Most of this took place at the Great Palace in Constantinople. A church was demolished to create a new courtyard, but of course a new church had to be built to compensate. A new dining room was added here, a new defensive wall there. The biggest project, though, was a brand new city. This was to be built near Kizikus and would be called Justinianopolis. Ah, just like the good old days, eh? The citizens of the new city would be the former residents of Cyprus. Again, the imperial fleet was ordered to show up, take the islanders off the western edges, and resettle them in the new metropolis. It could be that the emperor was trying to protect them from future Arab attacks, which he knew he could do little about. But a more cynical reading is that he wanted to leave the island to the Arabs, now that he controlled the island's tax revenues. That way, he would be making pure profit from a group of people he didn't need to defend. That's probably too cynical, though, and many Cypriots resented the move and headed home when they could. All of this construction added to the need for taxes to be raised rigorously, which the wealthy elites heartily resented. By 692, the Arab Civil War had finally drawn to a close. I can't really explain the details, not without starting a whole new podcast, but Abd al-Malik was the man who had inherited command of the Syrian army, still the best force in the Mediterranean and the Near East, and essentially he used this force to fight in Mesopotamia and in Arabia to force his opponents to accept his rule and therefore the legitimacy of his Umayyad family taking control of the caliphate. Now it was time for war to resume with Byzantium. Who was responsible for the outbreak of hostilities is slightly difficult to ascertain. The basic story goes that Justinian and Abd al-Malik disagreed about the coins which the caliph was using to pay his tribute with. You see, Justinian had begun issuing a new coin, with his own portrait on one side, as usual, and an image of Jesus on the reverse. This was an innovation, and of course somewhat provocative, to Muslim beliefs. So far, the caliphs in Syria had been willing to mint Byzantine coins, complete with the emperor's portrait and everything. Their own Roman subjects were familiar with this coinage, and it made treaties and cross-border trade nice and simple. However, a Muslim caliph could hardly be expected to tolerate images of Jesus presented as God's son. So Abd al-Malik minted coins in a slightly different weight and style, eventually complete with phrases from the Quran on them, and these would eventually emerge as the standard currency of the caliphate. Now in some stories, Justinian is presented as the aggressor. Abd al-Malik sent the exact weight of tribute which the treaty demanded, but simply used different coins. The emperor is pleased that his ruse has worked and refuses to accept the payment. He now readies his army for a war that he wanted to start. 
In other versions of the story, it's the Caliph who is the one looking to end the peace. He has no interest in paying the Romans anymore and wants to get his empire back into the conquest business, in part at least to put the horrors of civil war behind them. In this telling, the Jesus coins, which you can see on Facebook or at the website, are merely used as a pretext. And it's Abdel Malik that is delighted when Justinian questions the new type of coin which turns up at the border. Either way it happened, both sides were prepared for conflict. Justinian had been gathering his army in anticipation of this in northern Anatolia. Meanwhile, the caliph ordered his men to cross the mountains as soon as spring allowed them to make sure the fighting took place on Roman soil. Justinian's army, including the new division of Slav troops under their commander Nebulus, uh, were near Sebastopolis, in the centre of the Armeniacon theme, which is where battle would take place. The Muslim forces apparently fixed a copy of the peace treaty to a spear at the head of the army to make it clear who they believed, or wanted everyone to believe, was responsible for the renewed hostilities. Details of the battle are sketchy as ever, but the story which comes down to us is that the Byzantine forces held their own until Nebulus and some of the Slavs switched sides. Perhaps two-thirds of the Slav division rebelled, and possibly a well-placed bribe did the trick. We should always be suspicious when the side writing the history are defeated by the enemy's treachery, but as this had happened back in 668 as well, and these Slav men had only recently been deported and conscripted, it seems entirely possible. Upon realising they were now dangerously outnumbered, the Byzantine force broke and fled. And although they suffered many casualties, the Arab army also withdrew and made their way home. Justinian was furious at seeing his best-laid plans collapse in front of him. The emperor ordered many of the remaining Slav troops to be dismissed from imperial service. Some were executed on suspicion of being a part of the defection. Others were sold into slavery as a punishment. Worst of all, it is said that some of the wives and children of the men who had crossed to the Arab side were murdered on the emperor's vengeful orders. This cruel and violent retribution was a revealing moment for the emperor's character. He also blamed the Stratigos of the Anatolicon, Leontius, who it seems was the senior general at the battle. Leontius was recalled to Constantinople, arrested and imprisoned. Shrugging off this military setback, the emperor continued in his quest to be seen and remembered as one of the great men of history. That autumn he called for another ecumenical council, perhaps again recalling that his namesake, had done likewise. Of course, Romania had just seen an ecumenical council. This supposedly rare event had only finished its deliberations 11 years earlier. The emperor couldn't find any theological matters to debate, given how these had all been solved by the previous council. So he insisted that many issues of canon law, the rules governing how the church operate, be decided by this council. Although this might seem spurious, it was true that most of canon law at the time had not been updated since the Council of Chalcedon way back in 451. During those two and a half centuries, the practices of clergy in the West and those in the Byzantine Empire had diverged. 
For example, in the West, married men who became a deacon or a priest were required to renounce their wedding vows and become celibate, while in the East, they could stay married. Another example was that during Lent, those in Byzantium did not fast on Saturdays, while those in the West did. The council was made up of almost entirely Eastern churchmen who wrote into canon law all those prescriptions which they were quite used to. And as you've seen with the Monophysite issue, Christians of the time had a tendency to dig in their heels and feel that their beliefs were under attack rather than seek any compromise of principle. So to those in the West, the news of this council led only to further estrangement from those Greek-speaking subjects of the emperor. One of the council's most antagonistic pronouncements, from a Western point of view, was that the Pope's primacy amongst the church patriarchs was merely an honorific title, not an official rank. Pope Sergius in Rome was naturally upset when he read the declarations of the council, and he refused to ratify it. The high-handed Justinian ordered for the Pope to be arrested, just as his grandfather had done, but once again the exarchate went into at least partial rebellion by refusing to let imperial officials near the pontiff. Another blow to the emperor's plans. The council was not officially recognized as ecumenical once Justinian's reign ended, and is known today as the Quinisext Council, meaning the Fifth-Sixth Council, as it was seen as an addition to those two rather than one in its own right. The council does give us an interesting insight into the behavior of ordinary people and the clergy, which I will touch on during the end of the century episodes. So far, the emperor has widely increased his expenses, alienated the aristocracy, and lost his most important military encounter. Despite this less-than-stellar reputation, the absence of sustained Arab raiding meant there was little threat to his rule. But as I said, the caliph was gearing his state back onto a war footing, and sure enough, in 694, Abd al-Malik resumed the annual raiding policy of earlier times. The Syrian army, along with its new Slav detachments, defeated the Byzantine troops in Cilicia that summer. In 695, they pushed the Byzantines out of Armenia again, taking many captives and putting those in Anatolia on notice that the balance of power had shifted back in the Muslims' favour. Realising that the empire's armies would need to be on red alert from now on, and perhaps sensing that he had pushed his people too far, Justinian decided to try and court the favour of the elites in the capital to get them back on his side. One of his first acts was to order that Leontius, the empire's senior general, be released from his prison cell. The former Stratigos of the Anatolikon had been languishing in prison for three years now, and although he wasn't being sent back to resume his old post, the emperor hoped that this gesture would win him some plaudits. Instead, it would lead to his downfall. Leontius was to be sent to take command of the theme of Hellas, but once he was with friends in Constantinople, he organized a conspiracy against the emperor. On the night that they would make their move, Leontius and his friends headed to the Praetorium, the capital's prison overpowered the guards on the front gate, and released the inmates. 
These included military men from the defeat at Sebastopolis and local aristocrats who had fallen foul of the tax collectors. They were all highly motivated to support the general's bid for power. Leontius armed them and instructed them to fan out across the city, raising the alarm with the cry, All Christians to the Hagia Sophia. Always capable of forming a mob quickly, the citizens of Constantinople began tumbling out of their beds and onto the streets to find out what the commotion was all about. Meanwhile, Leontius found the patriarch Callinicus, who agreed, seemingly willingly, to support the overthrow of the emperor. It's possible that Leontius also corralled the blues by telling them that the emperor planned on massacring them for supposed disloyalty. The patriarch led the crowds outside the great church in cursing the emperor's name and chanting other abuse, and when the sun rose over the city, the crowd made their way to the Hippodrome. It's not clear what happened next. Either Justinian's own soldiers handed him over to the crowd, or perhaps the emperor came out to the imperial box to try and mollify the rebels, only to be dragged down onto the floor of the arena. The latter is physically possible, and there was discussion of similar moves during the Nika riots. Either way it happened, the crowd was baying for his blood, but Leontius was determined to be merciful. Justinian was, after all, the legitimate ruler of the empire, and the general had been promoted by the man's father, Constantine IV. Leontius also didn't want to start his reign with bloody murder and set a precedent for his own future downfall, as Phocas had done. So instead, the emperor was held still, and like his uncles before him, had his nose slit and then his tongue was cut too. This public disfigurement would make him unfit to rule, but his life was spared. He was put on a boat and exiled to the city of Cherson in the Crimea. It was certainly a kinder fate than the one saved for Theodotus and Stephen the Persian. They were bound and dragged through the streets before being burnt alive. Once unleashed, the crowd's bloodlust had to be sated. In aping his namesake, Justinian II had been a little too true to the flaws of Justinian I. Repopulating Anatolia was a very good idea, but it would take a generation or more for new settlers to be Romanized and begin to defend the land as their own. Instead, the Slav troops were rushed into action, showing an impatience that we're quite familiar with from our time back in the 6th century. Justinian, of course, is not dead, so I could say he ruled the empire for 10 busy but unsuccessful years, but I think I will leave him be for now at age 26 and in exile. As you may know, this is not the last we will hear of him. It is the last we will hear of the 7th century narrative, though. Just as the previous century actually ended in 602 with the death of Maurice, so this hundred-year period stops now in 695. Both moments provide convenient stopping points because both were the end of a stable dynasty and saw the beginning of a period of crisis. So yes, there is a lot more bloodshed to look forward to when we return. It probably is the right time to say farewell, though, to the Heraclean dynasty. 
Heraclius was a usurper, we should remember, just like Phocus, and his opportunism was one of the reasons for the Persian breakthrough into Syria. However, Heraclius' military success stabilised the situation and quickly forced men to accept him as their legitimate sovereign. It's to the credit of the Heraclean family that Constance and Constantine were also solid rulers who sensibly responded to the Arab onslaught with defensive measures which kept the state functioning. I think they deserve extra credit because they both started their careers at such young ages. Even Justinian, despite his flaws, was a vigorous and proactive ruler, but ultimately that was to be his downfall. He did not seem to appreciate the relative strength of Byzantium compared to the caliphate. He actually mistimed his attacks in a way. If he'd marched on Damascus when Abd al-Malik's men were elsewhere, perhaps something extraordinary might have happened. Or at least some serious damage might have been done to the Umayyad dynasty that the caliph was helping to establish. Instead, Justinian lost battles that damaged his legitimacy while angering those close to home. And by emulating his namesake, he ended up being overthrown in his very own Nika-style riot. And like Maurice before him, one has to judge an emperor on how he passes from the stage. Keeping those close to you happy is part of the job. Justinian's failure cost him his nose, his tongue, and his throne. I will talk more about the achievements of the Heraclean regime in the end of the century episodes, but another thing I notice about them is that they are actually the longest serving blood dynasty in the history of the Roman Empire. I'm speaking strictly in terms of blood sons passing the crown to blood sons. Obviously, the Julio-Claudians were all manner of strange relatives rather than parent and offspring. The Antonines were mostly adopted, and even Constantine and Theodosius only managed to have grandchildren inherit the throne before other men were needed. Whereas Heraclius had a son, a grandson, a great-grandson, and finally a great-great-grandson, all become emperor of the Romans, the fertility of the Heraclians definitely helped stabilize Byzantium. At a time when the empire could easily have succumbed to a powerful new enemy, the dangers of civil war were at least kept largely at bay. Not anymore, though. When we return, the Roman world will collapse into a deep crisis that will invite the Arabs to use this political chaos to besiege and conquer Constantinople once and for all. For now, though, we head to the end of the century episodes. These have grown considerably in scope since I first imagined them. But of course, this century is exceptional because of the birth of Islam. I will be attempting to cover the origins of a new religion and nation, looking at the conquests from an Arab point of view, examining the reaction of Christians in the empire and those in the caliphate to their new situation, all before doing our usual tour of the nations outside the empire, the provinces within the empire, seeing what's changed and what hasn't, and answering all of your questions. Of which there are many, and the door is not closed. If you can get any other questions to me in the next couple of weeks, there's a chance that I can include it in my research. As usual, I make no guarantees about when these episodes will appear, as they require far more work than the regular narrative ones. However, I am much better organized this time than last, so hopefully I will be back sooner rather than later. Thanks so much for listening.
The History of Byzantium podcast is looking much more secure now. Thanks to your efforts, it has strong land walls and well-motivated defenders to watch the horizon. But those defenders will need food brought to them at mealtimes every day. It's no good losing concentration up there because of hunger. We need good men and women to run the farms that lie just behind the walls. I don't know if you visited my Twitter page, at ByzantiumCast, but there's a wonderful illustration of Constantinople up there, and you can see the vast sweep of farmland just behind the walls. Well, it's a lot of farming ground to cover, and you know what good farmers use to help create ripe crops? Yes, iTunes reviews. It's an ancient technique that really helps the harvest bloom. So if you haven't done so, please consider adding your star review to the stockpiles. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 